Hey, well, let's pray and then we'll jump into the message. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we can be here. Thank you for every guest that is here, everyone that's new to church. Thank you that you are here. And thank you that you are the God that declares us not guilty. And we say there's no one like you and that by you all things were created in heaven and on earth. And by you, you created us for you. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. We thank you that you're our rock and our fortress and our forgiver. You're the lover of our souls. So open the eyes of our understanding today as we open the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So you have your notes here. You have notes. So uh, this is just to help you so you can kind of track where we're going here. And if you want to fill in the blanks there, it's really to help you remember the message too. There, That's why we go to the trouble to do that. It's for you. And so what we're doing today is we're looking at the ancient book book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, really one of the great passages in all of Scripture there. It's full of incredible life lessons. So uh, this morning, there's a lot of lessons to be learned, uh, take-home lessons. So uh, the title of the message is Life Lessons from Nehemiah. And so if you're new to church, maybe you're not even sure what you think about church, not sure what you think about the Bible and all, not even sure if you think like, is this, this inspired? You know what? It doesn't even matter because the things we're going to talk about this morning, they are, they're life lessons. They're profound. They can impact your life. And so I want to introduce to you this morning the George Patton, General George Patton of the Old Testament here, book of Nehemiah, because this guy here, Nehemiah was like this guy. I mean, you didn't want to run into him in a military war, which he was going to be fighting. We're going to find out in weeks later. But he would deal with the enemy. And so we're going to unpack that in a few weeks here. He was strategic like a Winston Churchill, like a great leader like Winston Churchill. Even in the midst of opposition, he knew how to negotiate that. He was a brilliant thinker like Winston Churchill. And so the message this morning is going to be this in a nutshell. Number one, I'm going to talk about how God broke Nehemiah's heart. And why he did that and how God used that. And how our hearts are breakable and how God wants to use our broken hearts for his purpose. Secondly, I'm going to talk about what he did with his broken heart. He prayed and then he developed these convictions, these deep core convictions, which then were used to change the world that he lived in there. And uh, parallel to what God wants to do in us. So Nehemiah is living the Persian dream. Nehemiah is living in the posh palace, the most rich palace on the planet. There's Nehemiah, he's head of the security for who would be King Artaxerxes, or like the president of, of the nation there. It's a phenomenally important job, phenomenally important. So he would taste the food. I mean, he would taste the finest food in the world and drink the finest wine in the world. He was a professional food taster. He was the most influential person in the king's life next to his wife. You know how that game works there. And so the context then is this, is that over a hundred years earlier, the Babylonians, which were the, the ancient terrorists, they were barbaric terrorists, and they've blown up Jerusalem there. So the, the Babylonians, they built ramps onto the walls. They overtook Jerusalem. God's people had messed up and kind of walked away from him. And so what they did is they were so barbaric, they gorged out the eyes of the king. They killed his son. They would do things like they would cut off hands and feet. They would cut off ears and noses and extremities and heads. They'd stick them on trees so that the, uh, the exiles could see them. So there was such barbaric cruelty 
cruelty that happened. And they would castrate the young men like Daniel there. They destroyed the temple. This is the background of what happened there. So one day, Nehemiah, he hears the devastating facts of what happened. In verse Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3 on the screens, if you want to look there. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who have returned to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. So we talked about a couple of weeks ago how a city without walls was defenseless. You were hopeless. You had no economy. You were vulnerable to every attack possible there. You were oppressed. You were defeated. You, it was chaos or chaos waiting to happen. It was anarchy waiting to happen there. And so the protective walls were gone. About 10 miles there in perimeter were gone. And so the enemy had absolute total access and egress there. There was nothing they could do. It was like this. Well, what is, well that, that has nothing to do with my life. Well, this is what it would be like. It would be like at your home, imagine your home had no front door. And every day you slept in your home with no front door. That's what they were living like. That's the distress. That's the stress that they were under. And so there was no walls. The temples rebuilt, but no walls. And so verse 4, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days, I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. So when he hears this, it's not just like, ah, no big deal, you know, business is normal. I wept and prayed, what, for a half hour? No, for days. I was so moved, so devastated here. And so Nehemiah, what I want us to see is this, very important. Nehemiah begins this journey of being really changing the world. How he begins the journey is this way. His heart was broken. His heart was broken. That's how he begins the journey here. And uh, he just can't brush off the bad news. I mean, this is a God thing. And so Nehemiah's heart is broken. And God has created us with breakable hearts. And think about that. Why did God create you with a heart that could be broken? Why would God do that? So we're going to see here the power of a broken heart given over to God. See, a broken heart can be a gift from God. And so, because one of the things that happens there is when your heart is broken, you eventually develop convictions, and those convictions then lead you to action, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning here. Did you know this? The most nonprofits that have made an impact in the world most social movements that have made a, a difference in the world, they, you can trace it back almost every time to one person that had a broken heart. Did you know that? So take, for example, Habitat for Humanity. They built like something like 800,000 homes for people that normally wouldn't have homes. That began with one person that had a broken heart about people that didn't have homes. The guy that did Tom's Shoes, he was, you know, his heart was burdened with people that didn't have shoes around the world. And so his broken heart led to um, just millions of people now that have shoes all over the world because you buy shoes and they will put shoes on another person and they've continued that. Um, Bob Pierce, who's the founder of World Vision, here's his picture right here. He would travel to places where children were dying of hunger and malnutrition. And he had a Nehemiah-like experience where he said this. He said, God, and he was praying. There he is praying. He said, God, that you would break my heart with the things that break your heart. 
That quote come, came from Bob Pierce. And you know what happened? One man whose heart was broken, four million children in a hundred countries there were met and were fed and were taken care of because one man had a broken heart, affected four million children. And so what happened with him, you can see the picture there, he's holding a little baby. And he would be so distraught and so overwhelmed by that that he would begin to weep and, and just, and it, it so would break him that his colleagues would have to take him away and take him back to the, to the hotel so he could like pull it together. But this is the power of a broken heart here. And so you get burdened. And I don't know what your story is, but maybe you have something that keeps you awake at night. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody that's addicted. Maybe it's a family member there. Maybe it's injustice. Maybe it's something in the city. Maybe it's something in your community. Maybe it's somebody down the street there. But something, something has affected you, affecting uh, your heart there where you can feel a sense of being burdened. Maybe it's uh, just to help uh, you know, a friend that is, is just lost there in their, their life. But you're stirred and you're moved and your heart is burdened there. So it's a very important question. It's extremely important. And this is the question. What is it that burdens your heart? What is it that breaks your heart? God created you to have a breakable heart. And Nehemiah's heart, in your notes, was, was broken by something that was breaking God's heart. And God was going to move him in that direction there. His broken heart was useful to God. And so, look at, look at verse 5 there. Look what happens when his heart was broken, how he prays. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love and obey his commandments. Listen, I mean, here's a guy whose heart is broken. He's saying, listen, God, to me. He says, listen to my prayer and look down and see me praying night and day for your people. So that's the prayer of someone whose heart has been broken here. See, and I'm praying day and night. See, his heart is so moved that when your heart is broken, it's, it's like it's sustained there, and he's praying night and day, and he says, I know who you are, God. You're the great and the awesome God. And so what happens now is that after his heart is broken, he takes the time to sit down, to pray, to be alone before God here, and to do something. I want to point this out for this reason. Because sometimes your heart is broken and you just don't really do anything but have a broken heart. That doesn't change anything. Your heart can be crushed here, but you need to do something. Andy Stanley said this, Discipline, not desire, determines your destiny. Doing something with your broken heart, having the discipline to do something. Discipline, not just desire is what determines your very destiny. So Nehemiah here, you can see in your, in your notes there, he was serious about prayer. Well, what does that look like? Nehemiah is so serious that in 13 chapters, he prays 11 times. I mean, he's serious about praying here. And so third, 11 times it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. So I prayed to the God of heaven over and over. So I prayed to the God of heaven there. And so he's alone with God. He's humble before God here. And so this is how you begin your journey. When your heart is broken, you want to pray as Nehemiah prayed here. Talk to God here and ask God what to do. 
Because Nehemiah, you may remember from two weeks ago, he had four months from the time he heard the devastating news till he actually was able to do something. Four months there, God is before God sorting it out. So what he does there, and in, uh, in your notes there, is he prioritizes mission by prayer. See, he had this sense when his heart is broken, God, I need to pray. I need to do something about this. And so uh, why is that important? Because when you're praying there, God can build within you the convictions then that will sustain you until you're able to accomplish what it is that is breaking your heart. So he prioritizes his mission in prayer. You see, what a broken heart does, it will, it will compel you to action. It will compel you to, to do something there. And so he was burdened, he's broken by the bad situation here. And so what he does then is he begins to develop a plan. He develops a detailed plan, an intricate plan there. So you need to see this. He's broken, he's praying, but as he's praying, then a plan begins to emerge. God, how am I going to do this? How am I going to go to Jerusalem? It's 800 miles away. I'm the king's cupbearer. I'm stuck in this palace. I'm, I'm living the wrong story. What am I going to do? And there he begins to pray, and God begins to emerge, to emerge within him, to serve us within his heart. This is what you need to do, Nehemiah. And so he had this... Uh, this profound sense there for four months is developing this profound sense of a calling of what God wanted him to do there. Uh, God is forging a, a plan and a dream in his heart of what could be. And there he's developing these, these core convictions. I'm going to talk about that uh, when we conclude. Core convictions then that would carry him through until the wall was beat there, built there. And so why, why 120 days? Why four months? Well, there were all kinds of things that Nehemiah needed to know. All kinds of things that God was showing him. And we need to realize that there are all kinds of things that God wants to show you about the burdens of your heart there. And how, how he, he, um, uh, he speaks to you in that season there. And so the conviction that he had, imagine this. Nehemiah there, living in the posh palace there uh, of King Artaxerxes, he's moved because of his convictions from the posh palace to go to a trashed city. They're 800 miles away. See, and God birthed in his heart these strong beliefs that would carry him, his convictions there. And so the conviction to step out, the conviction to take a chance, the conviction there to leave the posh palace and to go to the inconvenience of being 800 miles away there in Jerusalem. So in verse 6 there, it says this. It continues his prayer. Watch, watch how he's identifying himself. Watch over and over. It says, I confess that we, oh, wait a second, that was like 140 years ago. I confess that we have sinned against you, even my own family, and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands and decrees and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. You see, Nehemiah is not like this because th there's a big problem here. There's a big problem. Your heart may get burdened. You may have some convictions, but there's a problem where you go, you know, it's just them. It's, it's, it's their fault. Those idiots, what they did, their condition is their responsibility. It's them. Nehemiah doesn't say that. He doesn't say, it's not those people in history that just disobeyed God. He realized, like, you know what? 
I'm like them. And, uh, and he realizes his own spiritual condition. He says, like, yeah, maybe they messed up and they screwed up and they missed God. And so have I. I have sinned and my family have sinned and we have sinned here. And so it's not just those people there. He didn't, like, distance himself. Like one of the things that keeps us from really ever engaging and, and, uh, um, and doing things God would have us to do because it's like it's them and we distance ourselves. And Nehemiah wasn't like that. He didn't judge them. He didn't look down on them. And so it wasn't just them. It's, it's us and it's me here. And he sees the, the, the brokenness of his own soul. He sees the darkness of his own soul there and sees that he needs God's grace here. And so... I'm reminded uh, of the story of Joseph Damien. And maybe you, you, you've heard of him. He's a very, very famous uh, missionary. And uh, in history, he engaged and he entered into one of the, the most horrific medical sequestrums in the history of mankind. Where, I don't know if you know this, but in Hawaii, uh, last century, when they had, there was all kinds of diseases brought to the islands. One of them was leprosy. So when leprosy, here's this picture right here. When leprosy was brought to the, the, the islands there, about 8,000 people were brought there to Molokai. I have been to the leper colony. I have walked through the leper colony. I, I have seen the lepers there. And the, the incredible uh, darkness and just defeat. And uh, it was one of the saddest, perhaps the saddest experience that I've ever had there. But what happened is that they quarantined 8,000 people. And they put them there in Molokai. And so little children just ripped away from their parents if they thought they had leprosy, and they ended up there in Molokai. Well, Joseph Damien went there, and he visited them, and so he began to work there among the lepers. And while he was working with them, and they, you know, they're dying, he buried 6,000 of them. He built 2,000 coffins, 2,000 coffins, Joseph Damien. Well, one day what happened was, and he would always greet them, and he would say to them, my fellow believers, my fellow believers, for about many, many years, like 14 years. And then one day he's pouring himself some tea there, and, he, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the hot water swirls around in the cup, and it gets on his foot. And he was kind of stunned by that because he didn't feel anything. And he, and he thought, could it be, could it be that, that I am one of them? And he took his, his cup, and he poured the water out, and the hot water hit his foot, and he didn't feel anything. And he realized, I am one of them. And the next day when he saw them, he doesn't say, my fellow believers. Joseph Damien said, my fellow lepers. Because he was one of them. And he so impacted them, he so impacted them, that when he died, he was from Belgium, they took his body to Belgium, they took off his right hand, the bones of his hands, and they're buried there in Molokai. And you know what? The people, they, they were so, uh, he was such a, a hero, uh, had such a Nehemiah-like experience there that, uh, uh, that, he, that he was so um, um, uh, enshrined there as a hero. They said this, we want to have his hand there because it was the hand that touched us. It was the hand that touched us. And so there is a memorial there in Molokai to him uh, where you can visit it today, but it's just his hand that's buried there and Molokai, Joseph Damien. But see, he didn't say, oh, it's just them. It's just the lepers, my fellow believers. So 
my fellow lepers. See, and that's what Nehemiah is talking about here. So see, he identified with them. And really when your heart is broken, you need to, you need to identify with the people. Isn't this what God has done? This is, what God, this is God's story. God didn't, say, God didn't say, oh, look at what they have done. No, God became like us. He who knew no sin became sin. God came to our planet. It wasn't like, oh, look, look at those losers down there. No, he becomes like us. He doesn't say, look what they did there. So in your notes, God made our problem, our sin to be his problem. And that's what Nehemiah was doing here. So, and I think fundamentally, every Christ follower realizes this, that your story is a story of a God who, who was, uh, that doesn't stay far from us, but he loves us and he came to us here. So in your notes there, it says, move from me to we. In other words, we move from isolated, insulated me to we, us, engaged, inclusive there. That's the story that behind Nehemiah here. So it's not just them, but me. So verse nine, or excuse me, verse eight. He says, continue his prayer. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. And here's our story too. If you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, even if you've been exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I've chosen for my name to be honored. And the people, watch, you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. See, this is the story. This is our story. This is my story. This is your story here. This is the story of grace. Story of every Christ follower here that tells that, hey, whatever your story is, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, just like them, no matter how far from God you are, no matter how broken your life is here, it doesn't matter. If you, like them, will turn back to God, God welcomes you. God welcomes you with arms of grace and arms of love and says, yes, come home here. And God will restore you. And so God will rescue you here. It's my story. 17-year-old, I had zero interest in God, zero interest in anything about Jesus. It's like, why would anyone have such a life? But God rescued me, and Jesus became real to me, and, and here I am today. And so, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. See, we want to live the story out for the rest of our lives here. So look at verse 11 on the screens. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. And grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. He's praying for God's favor. and Put it in his heart to be kind to me. Watch, watch. Look on the screens. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. You see, essentially, your Nehemiah here is tremendously burdened here. He knows walls need to be rebuilt here. He's overwhelmed by it every day. But here's the problem. I'm 800 miles away, and I'm not qualified to do that job. I was the king's cupbearer. Now think about that for a moment. Nehemiah is saying this, I was in the wrong country, I'm living the wrong story, I have the wrong job here, and, uh, and God has another story for me, but I was the king's cupbearer. And so 
I want us to see this, and it's very important that we, that we grasp this. It's in your notes. Don't underestimate what God can do through you. Don't underestimate what God can do through you. You are an individual. This is most, perhaps one of the most important things I have to say this morning. You're an individual, okay, of unique capacity. And God wants to use you. God wants to use your brokenness. God wants to use your, your broken heart. And God works extraordinarily through normal people like Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he's a normal person. He's not a church person. He's not a professional person. He's a normal person. You see how God is going to use him, the cupbearer to the king there. And secondly, in your notes, I want us to see this, that what this screams out to me, this is screaming something, it's screaming out to me that God is not limited by your vocation. God is not limited by your vocation. I'm just a cupbearer. Yeah, well, God's going to use you like Patton, like Churchill. It's amazing what God's going to do through you. Yeah, you're just an ordinary, non-professional person here. Yeah, you think you're disqualified. Yeah, you're just a cupbearer. But, oh, Nehemiah, wait to see the story that God's going to write through your life. And then chapter 2, verse 1. Early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king as wine. And I had never appeared sad in his presence. Because uh, palace protocol was, you're in the king's presence. You better be happy, dude, or, or it might be over for you. you you're never sad in his presence. So um, we're going to talk about that next week. And you have to come back next week to hear what we're going to talk about. <laughs> so four months. Four months. 120 days. Nehemiah is waiting here. I like, to, I like to unpack this for a moment because I don't know where you land, but I'm like a shoot, ready, aim type of a person. I don't know about you, but I like to get things done. I want to jump on it. I want to move. So, but 120 days, four months, like he's got this plan, this burden before the king in 120 days. So I want you to see this, that in your notes, waiting time is not wasted time. Waiting time is not wasting time. Your heart is broken, you're burdened, you want to do something here. But there are seasons that we have to wait. Perhaps you're in such a season where you want to get something, you want to do it, but it's just not the right season. It's waiting time. And we need to understand that maybe there's a burden on your heart, but maybe you don't have the finances to do anything. Maybe you don't have the training. Maybe you don't have the education. Maybe your job won't let you go. Maybe you don't have the experience. And there needs to be the right thing at the right time here. And so waiting time is not necessarily wasted. We need to let, learn to let time be our friends here. So what is God doing? 120 days. Well, God is preparing him. Yeah? Think God was preparing him? God was giving him a plan. God was doing something inside him. The, the time's not wasted. The four months is not wasted here. God's preparing him. He's developing these incredible convictions. He, he's, he's a person where God is working in him before God's going to work through him. So there's God working behind the scenes in Nehemiah. And here's why I bring this out. Because you are in danger while you are waiting of losing heart and giving up. Is that true? 
Is that true or is it just me? You're in danger. Your heart is burdened. Time passes. More time passes. You are in danger of giving up. You're in danger of quitting there and losing heart. And God has dropped something in your heart that God designed for you to do there. But you can lose heart. You can give up there. You can think it'll never happen. So what do we do? Well, we do what what Nehemiah did here. A four-month gap here. And uh, so what he's doing, he begins to plan, exquisite plan. He's getting letters from, uh, so he can get supplies there. He's getting um, uh, a protective guard from the king. He's getting everything just sorted out in his mind. So when the king says, Nehemiah, what, boy, what's wrong with you? You've never been sat in my presence before. He says, king, well, let me tell you. And again, he's got to come back next week to hear this, and I'll tell you then. But he's, man, he's ready to go. How's that for baiting you for next week, huh? You getting the, feel I, getting the feeling I want you to come back next week? And so here's what we need to, we need to grasp. Here's, here's a point, another important point in your notes. What God originates in your heart, God will orchestrate. What God originates in your heart, God will orchestrate. If it is God who is originating that, Okay, that dream, that burden, that, that heartbrokenness. If God is in, in that, and you're wondering, well, how God can this be? How are you going to do this? It's impossible, God. The insurmountable odds that I face. If God originates it, God will orchestrate it. And so we wonder how God, see, how does a cupbearer build a wall 800 miles away? He's not a general contractor. He's not a military dude. He, he's just a cupbearer. How does that happen? See, what begins with God, God will provide. God will make a way. God will arrange that. God will set up the situation. God will do it. What he originates, he orchestrates. And so don't you see this in Scripture? People saying, why, how, God, how are you going to do that? And so the one question, the one word that stands in the way of you doing what God wants you to do is this. What do you think the word is? What do you think it is? Huh? It's why. It's why. Watch. Mary there, we just had Christmas a few months ago. Mary then, uh, God comes to a teenage girl, and the angel of the Lord says, Hey, the Holy Spirit is with you, and you're going to conceive, and you're going to give birth to the Son of God. And what did she say? How? How could this be? Like she, but see, what God would originate in Mary, God will orchestrate. So how could it be? She says, how, how could it be that I've never been with a man here? She says, how could it be since I'm a virgin? And the angel says, with God, all things are possible. See, God will orchestrate it when God originates it. He is able to do more than you can ask or think there. Uh, you take the disciples when Jesus looks out at the thousands of people there, 5,000 men plus women and children, and he says to his followers or his disciples, hey, here, I want you to feed them. And they're like, how? Here's, get, get the loaves and fishes from the, the, little, the, from the guy there, from his little G.I. Joe box. I take that and feed them. They're like, how? You see, we need to leave the, the how up to God here. Because see, asking how can kill what God wants to do through you. If you just don't trust it, he is able. Remember his prayer, you're the great and the awesome God there. But we get intimidated by the how. We bail because of the how. How's my husband, how's my wife ever going to be reached? 
They're hard-hearted there. How could it be? How are my wayward children ever going to come back, you know, to the fold here? How can I ever provide for my family now that I'm single provider? How am I ever going to get out of debt? How's my business ever going to, you know, get to the next place? How, how, how? So how then is something that you will never know. You'll never know the how. See, see, so we need to be clear on is this, is that how is in God's hands. How is in God's hands. That's not necessarily in your hands there. And so God has never had a problem with how. Nehemiah, we want you to go 800 miles to the, to the city of Jerusalem. That's insane. I mean, that's absolutely insane what was being asked of him. And he's like the least qualified. How am I going to do that? You leave that up to God. And so a couple years ago, 18 months ago or so, someone that goes to church here came out to me and said, hey, I think that as a church, we should be more intentional about providing for our friends on the streets and give them sleeping bags. And I said, well, how is that going to happen? That was my first question. Well, how are you going to do, how are you going to do that? Where are you going to get, uh, he said, we're going to start small with uh, 60 or 70 sleeping bags. I said, how are you going to, how much do they cost? He said, oh, it's going to cost about $40 per bag for what we're going to do. I said, how, how are you going to pay for that? And uh, so I just started asking, how, 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 how? And, uh, and so, um, so he trusted God. One person had a Nehemiah-like burden. So today, there's 140 sleeping bags. Because of Garrett Castro, you, you are going to dispense to the community. Because like one guy had a dream. One guy had a burden. That's why I wanted to give this message on this day so you could remember when you're giving that sleeping bag. This is one person's dream for our friends on the street. And so, see, God can build powerful convictions in your life that come to expression later, but in your time of waiting, God builds those. So here's Nehemiah leaving his comfort zone, being inconvenienced because of the, incon- because of the convictions that he developed from his broken heart, taking a huge risk. And so all the things that he was leaving there so he can make a tangible difference there. You know, you think about people in history that have done great things for God, that were burdened. You think of Martin Luther King, Junior there. Here's a picture of him. And he said this, and I love this quote. I love this quote that, that, is, uh, that just uh, uh, emerges from the deep convictions that he had. And he said this, if a man has not found something worth dying for, he's not fit to live. If he hasn't found something that he would die for, he's not even fit to live. The great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So see, in his life, his, the, the, his heart was broken. Dr. King developed these deep convictions. And then he changed the world there. And so here's Nehemiah. He's been waiting for months, developing the convictions that would carry him through the mission that God had called him to do there. And so in your, all that to say this, in your season of waiting, God's put something on your heart. In your season of waiting, God wants to transition that, transform that, that you get some godly convictions because those will sustain you when you're carrying out the mission God has for your life. And so you can't be 
And just have to remember, God will, God will orchestrate what he originates. You have to let time be your friend. Waiting time is not wasted time. Let me tell you from my own life how this came to expression. At a, at a previous church that I was at, I, um, I, I ran into some bumpy, some bumpy times. And I had a conversation well, it was, not, it was kind of a unilateral conversation. And essentially, I was being fired. I'm not trying to be cute or funny. Uh, I was being fired. And so, and while I was being fired, I was told the person that was going to replace me from Harvest Christian Fellowship in Riverside. I was told who the person was going to be that was going to replace me. And uh, as it turned out, I didn't get replaced and we had a good run. But during this time, of waiting, I developed some convictions. And there are convictions that have carried me all of my life now. And I want to tell you those five of those convictions. And so um, there are convictions that shape me. There are convictions that drive me. There are convictions that cause me to stay up late and get up early in the morning. There are convictions that define me. There are convictions that really are who I am that I can never escape from. They're the core of my being, which I would never back down from. So you have convictions that God wants to, to put within you. And I just want to share with you during my season of waiting, five convictions that uh, emerged in my heart. And so the first conviction is this, is that to teach the Bible is my conviction. It's what I spend most of my time doing, most of my time preparing for. It is my one job. Uh, I study. I study a lot. I study to teach, to invite people, because my conviction is this. I want you to love the scriptures. And so I spend much time there trying to hear God's voice for us here. And I believe my conviction is that God speaks to us every issue of your life. This is my conviction that, that he speaks to you through the scriptures. I want you to love it. I want it to transform your life. I want it to be relevant. I want it to be understandable. I want it to be simple. I want it to, to be life-changing here, to be transformative. I want it to be practical, and I want it to be real. And this is my conviction. So I give my life to this conviction of uh, uh, to teach God's word. And so that is... Um, it is at the core of, of, of my being. It is a core conviction. But, that is another, but that's not the only conviction that I developed during my season. The other conviction that I developed, which is very dear to me and very core to me, is this. Is that people are the ministers of the church. People. People are like, like you are the ministers of Sanctuary Church. So when people are sick, it's you that visit, should visit them. People are in the hospital. It's, it's your job to go see them. When they need to hear about Jesus, it's your job to tell them. When um, you're the ministers of prayer, you're the ministers of marriage, you're the ministers for men and women and children and teenagers, you are the ministers, according to Ephesians 4 there. But do you believe that? Do you believe that, that you're the ministers? See, my, my part in the journey is to encourage and to um, uh, inspire and to equip, that's my job. But my job is to like cheer you on because you're the ministers. And in, uh, in church world, we get it all wrong. We think, oh, it's, it's those people on the platform. No, if you read the Bible, you're the ministers of the church. And so it's a deeply held conviction that I have. 
Another conviction that I have is the church needs to be relevant, needs to be worshipful. Um, and so, and this is born out of my own experience because I went to church before I was a Christ follower. See, I went to church, and what happened was when I was in church, I, the first, uh, this, this one church, a couple churches, I, I didn't really like it. And it was boring to me. And, uh, um, and I thought, like, this is, this is wasting my time. This is just, I'm, I'm bored here. And so um, now that I have the opportunity to have some influence, I would never want it, I don't want it to ever be boring. I want it to be relevant, to have inspiring worship, to be awesome, for people to be fired up to come here. And so, uh, so this is why uh, it's relevant so that we want to tell as many people as long as we can there uh, so that, uh, we would just be a church that, that takes risks and a church that risks everything to introduce people to Christ. That we would be a church there that, that knows and believes and has a conviction that people's story would be better off if God was at the center of their story. It's my, my conviction that I have there. and So that we would pursue our friends here and to, to believe that there is a, a heavenly father that is waiting to change their story. The church would be relevant. My fourth conviction, deeply held conviction, is this. As a church is a community. Church is a community. And so um, think about this. If all we do in church, and this is why you hear me talk about it a lot. If all we do in church is if we, if we just do Sunday, and I recognize it, that for some people that's like what's realistic for them. But Sunday in rows, Sunday in rows, like, you say, was that really church? People don't know one another. People aren't connected. People aren't related to one another. People don't have relationship. People aren't doing life together. Is that, is it church or is it a bunch of people in a building? You see, church then is not just in rows, but church is like this where you're face to face and where you sit in, in, in circles. And so what we try to do as a church is, is to drive people into circles, because we know it's in a circle where you experience real community. It's in a circle there where you really experience life change there. And so where you, go, you do life together and you're God's loving family. And so what we try to do is we want to find a way that we can just find a circle somewhere. Find a circle somewhere during the week that then we become connected, that we're actually a, a body there. And so church was designed by God to be a community there. And so I'm convinced that unless we, we become a community, we're really not being the church as we're destined to be there. And so life change happens best when you're in a circle there. That is my fourth deeply held conviction. And my last one is this. My last one is that the church is to bless the community. Bless the community. Have you ever been in a church that if, you, if the church wasn't there, no one would care? I mean, the community wouldn't even know you were gone. So is that the kind of church we want to be a part of? Or, or do we want to be a part of a church that if we weren't here, the police department would know, and the fire department would know, and the schools would know, because the kids aren't getting fed now. Like the kids here in this school, if we weren't here, kids here wouldn't be fed. They wouldn't be, be fed at Dun, Dunlap. Uh, the kids at Youth Hope, wouldn't be fed there in Redlands if it wasn't for you. Taps is in Africa right now, and he's, and he's texting me this week. Hey, Rod, uh, Dr. Rod, he says, could you, could you please he's, tell the people, says, Taps, send me a video, and, and I'll talk to him, and I'll do that. I'll do that in, in subsequent weeks here. But um, so 
we want to be a church that is in the community, but not just in the community, be in the community, but we're in the community, okay, okay, because we're for the community and to bless the community and beyond. And so this morning, you, Sanctuary Church, you're building a home for the homeless in Mexico across the border, and someone that never had a home now has a home. They're being given the keys because Sanctuary Church built a home. See, that's what we want to do. That's who we are. The church is in the community to be a blessing there, and uh, uh, really to, to, to bless the community in breathtaking ways. Just to bless the community in breathtaking ways there. And so these are are my strongly held convictions, and then uh, blessing the community. You, the ministers of the church, you're going to bless a homeless person when you take a sleeping bag with all the good stuff in it, and you're going to bless them as the ministers of the church because we care about the community. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story God is writing. And so I want to pray. I want to close by praying Nehemiah's prayer over you. This prayer that he just prayed, I want to close and I want to pray it over you. Would you bow your heads? And Father, as Nehemiah said, you're a great and an awesome God. That's who you are. Awesome. But we have sinned and I have sinned. God, I know your grace and your love and you know each of our stories You are the God who forgives and you are the God who rescues and you are the God who restores. You're the God who saves. You're the God who breaks our hearts. You're the God that forges a dream from heaven and you place it in every one of our hearts. And Father, for some of us, we're in a season of waiting. Let us not let waiting, see waiting time as wasted time. Maybe we're in a season of preparation. May we be serious about spending time in preparation and talking to you and developing convictions in our heart. You are the God who's able to orchestrate what you originate. And Father, may we, as Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer, may we never underestimate what God can do through each of us. And Father, may it start today. May you, a great God, do a great work in us. May we learn the great lessons that you have given us through Nehemiah. In Jesus' name, amen.